I V M. The Indian economy is in trouble. Our growth is the lowest it has been in years. Foreign direct investment is on the down low. The auto sector is not doing well. So how do you draw up a blueprint for the economy? About 75 years ago, a couple of men came together. These were important men in their own rights. Industrialists like J.R.D. Tata, G.D. Birla, Purushottam Das Thakurdas, economists like Ardashish Dalal and E.D. Shroff, and even the first finance minister, John Mathai. They drew up a plan for the Indian economy in 1944. And we could take a leaf or two from their plan to see what we can glean about the economy today. Hello and welcome to States of Anarchy. I'm your host, Hamsani Hariharan, and every week on the show, I talk about global affairs and foreign policy. Now, we like to call India an emerging power or a rising power. But this power rests on our potential. And if our economy is anything to go by, our potential is very circumspect. The Asian Development Bank, which projected Indian growth at 7.2% for the year 2020, has now slashed this figure down to 6%. The export of goods and services have declined from 25% of GDP in 2013-14 to less than 20% in 2019. Our unemployment stands at a 45-year high. Passenger vehicle sales have fallen by 30% in just July. The last time it fell this low was in the year 2000. Houston we don't just have a problem we're living on borrowed time if we do intend on ever becoming a 5 trillion dollar economy we're going to need 8% growth and we're going to need reforms fast ones i'm not going to get into what reforms we need for india's economy now no instead i'm going to throw back to 1944 when some of the most visionary men in this country came together to write down a blueprint for the economy Today the Bombay plan is largely forgotten even though it has an important part of influencing our five-year plans since 1947. My guest for today is Dr. Sanjay Baru. Dr. Baru has served as the Secretary General of the Federation of Indian Chambers of Commerce and Industry of FICI. He's also served as the Director for Geoeconomics and Strategy at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. He was the official spokesperson and media advisor for the former Prime Minister of India and has authored the book The Accidental Prime Minister among others. Last year Dr. Baru along with Meghna Desai edited a book of essays on the Bombay plan which I highly recommend you read. Today Dr. Baru and I are delving into the Bombay plan what it entailed why it was written and most importantly how is it relevant to some of the discussions on the economy today. But before we get into the conversation let's hear from IBM podcasts. Hey everybody, you know what we've got? We've got another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So if you haven't been following us on YouTube, please do. Do a search for IVM CCTV and get a peek inside what's going on in the studio. You can see excerpts from Cyrus Says, Naveen from Keeping It Queer, Akash from Vartha Lab. There's stuff that we've done with Feeding 10 Billion. There are a whole bunch of little videos over there. Give it a watch and uh, let us know what you think about that. This week on Cyrus Says is a podcast crossover as host of our new show GBCT Farhad Karkaria and Sunitra Lahiri join Cyrus to talk about the meaning of being queer, how to define labels and how their podcast came about. Also, speaking of GBCD, Farhad and Sunitra in their show delve into the family stories and recalling what it was like to navigate queerness as a kid. On Paisa Vaisa, Anupam is joined by two guests, Ankur Chaudhary and Swapnil Bhaskar. They're the co-founders of Goldwise. They discuss the new features at Goldwise and transitioning from regular to direct mutual funds. 
On Golgappa, Tripti is joined by Mahesh Ane, award-winning cinematographer who is known for his work on Swades. He talks about the ups and downs that he encountered along the way in the film industry. On Ganatantra, Alok and Saryu are joined by Smitana Saikya of Flame University, Pune, to talk about the history and impact of the NRC list and how it has caused marginalization in the Northeast. On another crossover, this time on What a Player, Mikhail and Siddharth are joined by Sivram Parmeswaran, the host of the podcast Football Should Ball. They talk about the thrill of watching football and following a club. On Mr. and Mrs. Binge Watch, Janice and Anirudh look back at the best and worst moments of the 2019 Emmy Awards. On Advertising is Dead, Varun is joined by singer-songwriter Ankur Tiwari, who talks about how artists find new forms of expression and monetize their work. And with that, let's get you on with your show. Hi, Dr. Baru. Welcome to States of Anarchy. I'm very happy that you're joining me today. Well, my pleasure. So, in 1944... It's a very dynamic world. World War II is just dying down. Uh, you have D-Day that happens across Asia. You have anti-colonial movements that are going on. Uh, and it's a particularly interesting time in India. And this is the time when the Bombay Plan is written. Could you tell me a little more about what the Bombay Plan is? You know, it's a unique document because nowhere in the third world, in the colonies across Africa, Latin America, Asia, you know, there were all the European colonies across the world. We do not have anywhere a similar document mm. produced by a group of indigenous businessmen about long-term development of their country. Mm. So it's a very interesting combination of a group of people who are thinking about, you know, on a year-to-year basis. Mm. As businessmen, they're looking at the balance sheet, they're looking at profit and loss, they're looking at the short term. Uh, but this is a 15-year plan for India. Okay. So in that sense, it's a unique document. Mm. And the question arises, why did that document get written in India? Mm. I think one, of course, is the fact that um, many in India at that time, including our business leaders, were hugely impressed by the Soviet experience. Mm. And Soviet Union had started five-year plans and long-term planning. So there's a tremendous influence of the Soviet experience uh, on India. And already by the 1920s, the industrial development had already started. So we, we had about two decades of industrialization m- moving uh, you know, forward. So I think by the mid-40s, um, there was enough experience with industrial development uh, for businessmen to understand what are the preconditions necessary mm. for this to be sustained on a long-term basis. And they identified each of the barriers mm. to India's long-term development whether it's land reform, agrarian change, education, healthcare, basic infrastructure, schooling, mm. technical skills, and of course, most important, capital. Mm. And all of that is discussed in great detail. This is very interesting because we know that like our planning commissions and stuff draw heavily from the Soviet experience. But it's interesting to think of a group of capitalists also taking from the Soviet experience because the two would seem very at odds with each other. True, but you know, these are capitalists in a colony, mm. first of all. In 1944, we were still a colony. Mm. And many of them uh, had emerged as industrialists in the preceding 20 years, mm. basically from after the First World War. Uh, so they were still were struggling with the, the policy framework of a colony. Mm. And they were inspired by the Soviet experience because the Soviet Union also unshackled itself mm. from feudalism, from dictatorial rule and established a workers party Mm. in power. So in that sense, they were inspired by the experience of how rapidly uh, Russia had industrialized. 
but also if you look at Europe itself, and mm. many of them went and studied in Britain, uh, Britain was heavily influenced uh, by the Soviet experience. So mm. if you look at the kind of economics that was taught in the interwar period in uh, British universities, there was a lot of uh, focus on planning and the role of the state. And during the war itself, the government became an extremely important economic player mm. in all the capitalist economies because mm -hmm. there was rationing, wartime rationing, there was wartime production, uh, government dictated production. So whether it was Britain or France or the US, uh, you know, any of the European countries, they all also were uh, emphasizing the role of the state. And f in a colony like India, uh, which was very backward, mm. hardly had any capital goods industry, yeah. hardly had any technical education, hardly had any education, in fact, for that mm. matter. Clearly, these businessmen realized that they didn't have the money mm. uh, to invest in all of this. And therefore, the government had to come and play a big role. And I think it's also important to remember that in the 1920s, you had the Great Depression that played out in America, and that sort of affected different parts of Europe as well. And perhaps that is why they wanted more state control to come into their uh, countries. Exactly. I mean, the whole Keynesian economics came out of that mm. period, right, in the 1930s. and. Mm. The whole idea of government spending mm -hmm. being a stimulus, mm -hmm. the concept of a multiplier in macroeconomic theory, that the, if the government spends one rupee, it actually multiplies. Uh, and over a period of time, the economy generates uh, you know, a, a multiple of that one mm -hmm. rupee. And so growth can be stimulated by government spending. So this is a very powerful idea that Keynes uh, introduced. Uh, and the economist in this group, you know, we have, I've not mentioned the names of the authors. Mm -hmm. We had J.R.D. Tata, who was the person who took the initiative because the Tata Sons mm -hmm. funded, in fact, the research work. Okay. And much of the writing was done by John Matai, who was at that time an advisor in the Tata group, mm -hmm. later became the first finance minister of Jawaharlal Nehru's government. Okay. And there are three or four other people working for the Tatas who also worked on this document. So J.R.D. Tata was clearly the leader of the group. Then there was G.D. Birla, there was mm -hmm. Purushottam Das Thakurdas, there was Adarshil Dalal, there was Lala Sriram, and uh, Shroff. Mm -hmm. So uh, all of them were uh, very influential people uh, at that point in time. And they understood the European experience. Uh, they understood what was happening in the rest of the world. And they recognized that in India, uh, if growth has to be sustained over a long period of time, the government has to play a big role. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I looked at the appendices of your book, I saw the Bombay plan in its entirety. And it was very interesting to see the scope of everything that they'd covered. It was a very intensive document. So what exactly was it? Was it a blueprint? Was it a program? What was its intention? You know, this is actually the most fascinating part of the Bombay plan. Mm -hmm. Because uh, these guys were not just talking in the air. They were not writing some manifesto saying, we should do this, we should do that, we should become a $5 trillion economy, <laughs> as we now say. They were not talking about big numbers. Mm. They are saying, if you want over a 15-year period of time to double per capita income, then what is the kind of investment needed? Mm. If uh, food consumption has to increase, if all Indians have to be fed, and then the calculated calories. This is the first time that there's a calculation of how much an individual should eat. And later on, all the poverty studies that were done, mm. all the estimation of poverty in India after independence, including in, in the last several years, goes back to this 
this is the first study mm. that said for a human being to work efficiently for eight hours a day, uh, this is the kind of calorie consumption he needs. For this calorie consumption, how much wheat should be produced? How much rice should be produced? How many, uh, what kind of poultry development is, you know, so they broke it down into specific numbers. Mm. And then they asked for an individual over a year, how many yards of cloth would be needed? Mm. For a woman, how many saris? For a man, how many dhotis or trousers mm -hmm. or shirt? They calculated. This is mm -hmm. the population of India. This is the amount of cloth needed. This is the population of India. This is the amount of food grain needed. This is the population of India. This is the amount of housing needed. So, And for this amount of housing, how much cement do you have to produce? How much iron and steel do you have to produce? So it's a, such a detailed exercise. And they it's like creating building blocks of development. Mm. Then they put it all together mm. and said, this is the total expenditure needed over a 15-year period. And how will the government raise this? So some of it, you raise it through taxation, but India was still a very poor country. Mm. Tax revenues could not have been very high. Some of it could be borrowed, mm. but a substantial part would simply mean printing money. And mm. that is what deficit financing was all about. Okay. Uh this is interesting because today we still bemoan the lack of data that exists. And I can't imagine how they managed to sort of gather this in 1944 and research it. You'd mentioned before that the Tatas had taken sort of the lead in researching it. But how did they go about uh, doing the research for this document? Well, you know, the basic data was available. For mm. example, population, we had a census already. Yeah. So we had the idea of what was India's population. Mm. And then they estimated, as I said, how much should people consume in a day? Mm -hmm. What are the calories? The idea about calories, etc., was already there. And uh, how much? So they, these are all estimates that they mm -hmm. generated based on a simple number, which is the size of the population. Okay, that's interesting. The thing that it also leads to is uh, when you say print money, that sounds like a rather controversial step. So what was the reactions to some of the things that they said? At that time, this was not a controversial idea. Okay. Because uh, the idea of deficit financing mm. was already being talked about uh, even in Western uh, you know, countries. Um, and this was, again, one of Keynes's contribution to macroeconomic policy. So it was not a, uh, it, it was not, f um, you know, a controversial idea. It mm. was not frowned upon. Mm. Um, and in fact, if you see, uh, and that is what we say in this book. In fact, all my co-authors, mm. each one of them has made this point that if you look at the first five-year plan of Free India, okay. written by the Planning Commission, headed by Mahalanobis mm. and uh, Jawaharlal Nehru was the chairman, and you look at the second plan, mm. these are all basically taking forward the ideas in the Bombay plan. Mm. You know, we we think of Mahalanobis as the father of planning in India and of you know Nehruvian model of development, but the real ideas came out of the Bombay Plan, and you know, these guys. And of course, I must add here uh, that the many of the ideas in the Bombay Plan owe to a large number of Indian economists mm. um, who are quoted in the Bombay Plan document who had been uh, teaching in University of Bombay, University of uh, Banaras Hindu University, Delhi, Usmania uh, University, etc. Most famous of them was, you know, uh, Radha Kamal Mukherjee, uh, Vera Anste, um, B.R. Shinoy, you know, V.K.R. Virao. Many of them uh, were already writing on the Indian economy. They are studying the Indian economy. So there was existing literature available mm. uh, on which they could draw. 
which is when you think of sort of Nehruvian economics and the great socialist, you don't really assume the correlation between that and the Bombay plan. In fact, I doubt how many people even know of the Bombay plan, except for in particular circles. Uh, but at that point in time, what was the reception to it when it was first released in 1944? Well, first of all, um, you know, you're absolutely right. In fact, the reason why we wrote this book, hmm. the reason why Meghnath Desai and I felt the time had come to put this book together was precisely this, how many people know about the Bombay plan. It's not even taught in our universities. Hmm. Fortunately, Meghnath and I belong to a generation where when we were students, we were taught the Bombay plan. Okay. But, you know, it just went out of textbooks. And so we thought it's time to revive the memory and bring it back into mainstream uh, discussion. Um, particularly because, you know, there's a lot of thinking about economic policy mm. uh, going on in the last few years uh, with the change of regime. So we thought this is a good time to remind people the the kind of original thinking that happened here. Um, but the uh, question of reception to the Bombay plan, it was mixed. Mm. There were many businessmen who did not like the idea of the role of the state in the Bombay plan. Mm. You know, it's not as if... Uh, all of Indian business accepted this idea. So there were many businessmen who came out and criticized the authors of the Bombay plan, saying, you know, you are assigning too big a role to government. Mm. And uh, this will result in uh, exactly what we don't want, which is a kind of Soviet-style economy mm. where the government dominates. So there, were, uh, there was a right-wing uh, critic of the Bombay plan. But interestingly, there was also a left-wing <laughs> The communists opposed it, <laughs> saying, oh, these businessmen want public money to be spent for mm. their growth and mm. prosperity, right? So the Marxists attacked the Bombay plan, the capitalists attacked the Bombay plan. <laughs> so it got attacked from both sides. I don't know if we can classify these men as liberals, but it seems like not a lot has changed when it comes to them being fired upon by both sides by of both the sides. spectrum. Sure. And... What about after a couple of years, you said that it had a legacy on planning. So it did affect the way we looked at development in this country because they spoke about things that were far ahead of its time, including conversations about public health, uh, yeah. conversations about agriculture, conversations about which industry we should invest in and things like that. So what do you think its legacies were on the larger Indian economy? You know, it's a pity that they didn't, in fact, leave a bigger imprint on policy than they ought to have. Mm. In fact, you draw attention to a very important idea in the Bombay plan, which is public health. Mm. Uh, they were impressed by what was being done again in the Soviet Union, but also in some other European countries, where there was publicly funded uh, health care mm. emerging. And um, uh, part of the reason, of course, was the war, which where government was paying more attention to health care. And then came out the beverage plan and the NHS, mm. the National Health uh, System in the, U in the UK. Um, but they understood the importance of public investment in education and health. Mm. And these are precisely the two things which we have neglected mm. and which we now talk about. In fact, that was another motivation for us to write the Bombay plan, that when the current government talks about, uh, you know, public investment in education, public investment in healthcare, new education policy, new healthcare policy. Mm. We are basically reinventing the wheel. Mm. These ideas have been spoken about earlier. Mm. And uh, it is a fact that uh, India neglected many of these ideas. On the, um, you know, issue of um, the new other new ideas in the Bombay plan, I think an extremely important idea mm. uh, where, again, we didn't do enough was land reform. 
they emphasize the importance of land reform of redistribution of land to the tiller mm. and if you look at the chinese experience or even um, you know other developing countries redistribution of land had a very positive impact on agricultural productivity mm. you know the end of landlordism uh, was a positive uh, impact on agricultural production and food availability so they were very sure that india had to end feudalism mm. end landlordism redistribute land land to the tiller no these are all ideas in the bombay plan wow that's and they also speak about things like education as you'd mentioned yes. they talk about adult education uh, which is very keenishian and when you compare it to sort of the backlash against just capitalism in general and globalization in today's world you can see that these are not sort of evil men who are trying to elevate their own positions in this but then later they also were disappointed with the way that the nehru government was carrying out some of the plans right some of these men went to form the swatantra party how did those dynamics work out that's again a very interesting phenomenon because uh, one i think these were essentially nationalist Uh, businessmen mm. so they were thinking about the nation about india so while they were businessmen they were capitalists they were interested in profit motive uh, they were of course very wealthy individually etc but the motivation for writing the bombay plan was really for uh, india to accelerate india's development mm. so it's very very nationalist and certainly the national movement influenced them i mean mm. gd birla you know was very close to mahatma gandhi mm. and gandhi ji in fact finally died in birla house um so therefore there was a tremendous influence of the national movement mm. but after independence and nehru becomes prime minister nehru for political reasons partly because the communists became the main opposition in mm. india you know in the 62 67 elections the main opposition were actually the communist party of india so nehru on the one hand had to keep uh, left of center mm. Uh, but um, also he was unable to carry out land reforms in many states the landlord class in fact came into the congress mm. party and they were chief ministers and the state level uh, leaders mm. so on the one hand he couldn't do land reform which is an important recommendation of the bombay plan on the other hand uh, he had a more state control than was the idea in the bombay plan so two uh, two kinds of trends emerged out of the original authors G.D. Birla, being a pragmatic politician, very close to the Congress Party, etc., he took the view that well, Nehru is now the Prime Minister. Mm. We have to live with him. We might as well, you know, compromise with Nehru and uh, support whatever he's doing. Mm. So the Birlas and many other Marwadi businessmen. um more or less became um, pro the nehru and regime and you know we we use the word crony capitalist today mm. a businessman who benefit from government mm. uh, support well many of them were crony capitalists in fact mm. we make the point in this book that you know people think of uh, adani ambani as crony capitalists today but the original crony capitalists were the birlas and you know the um, business groups that benefited uh, from uh, nehru's uh, regime then there was the other group which was basically led by jrd tata mm. uh which was very unhappy mm. with the direction nehru was taking india in so went and uh, created the swatantra party mm. uh, which was led by rajgopalachari and um, tata funded the, the swatantra party so you you had one set of businessmen and most of them based in bombay mm. and another set of businessmen mostly based in delhi or calcutta or uh, in the north india 
so two different directions mm. and uh, politics then evolved in the country in that manner swatantra party was around for almost 20 years and finally died uh, without being able to make an impact the congress it kept being on the left of center mm. and you know so we had indira gandhi and bank nationalization <laughs> and all of that happened much later uh, so you had a variety of other plans around this point in time right you have gandhi going you know villages are the heart of india we need to empower our villages and then you had something called the people's plan which is sort of a humanitarian vision for the world so how was the bombay plan different from these other plans that existed at the same point yeah. it's true i mean you had uh, mn roy was the author of the people's plan what was called it was a kind of leftist uh, plan much more um, role for the state mm. much less private sector then you had the gandhian plan um written by people uh, d- disciples of gandhi ji uh, who believed in village enterprise swaraj you know village um, uh, what was called gram swaraj mm. um cottage industry anti technology anti capital oh. intensive industry so you had this you know various other uh, models and when the planning commission was formed mm. in 1950 the members of the planning commission looked at all these plans right mm. they read uh, the people's plan of mn roy they read the gandhian plan they they read the bombay plan and it is not a surprise that they finally chose to go with the bombay plan mm. because that was a pragmatic plan it mm. was not ideological but like the people's plan uh, and the gandhian plan were both very heavily ideological which, uh, by which i mean they wanted to impose a particular regime of thinking on the people mm. um whether it was gram swaraj in gandhi ji's case or state led industrialization mm. in the people's plan case well, i think bombay plan took the pragmatic approach that look there is a private sector mm. there will be a public sector you need both mm. etc incidentally there is a in the last section of the bombay plan they do say that at some point in future when private enterprise has enough money hmm. then this public sector should be privatized so the original idea of privatization is also <laughs> there in the bombay plan okay that which brings me to the next question which was you have indira gandhi coming in and bank nationalization and all of those things so post the nehruvian uh, era what was the legacy of the bombay plan or was there a legacy of the bombay plan that continued post the 80s and the 90s no in fact the bombay plan was forgotten in the 50s forget okay. about 70s the 80s and 90s it mm. was a forgotten document mm. uh, as i said the, in fact the reason we reprinted the original document mm. in this book is because it there was no second edition mm. the, oh, wow. the and fortunately i had a photocopy of the original document um, there was one copy in the jawarlal nehru university library okay and you know that was photocopied many years ago and you know when i was secretary general of fiki i f- discovered that even fiki mm-hmm. which uh, funded this research at that time in 1944 didn't have a copy didn't have a original copy of the bombay plan so it was forgotten mm-hmm. i mean i think uh, once malan rubis came and nehru came and you know they rewrote history mm-hmm. they more or less buried the bombay plan mm-hmm. but post liberalization you still see a lot of the same debates that happen all over and over again even when the current uh, government came into power uh, more than 5 years ago you had the similar conversations about the same indicators about the same factors of the economy happening so what do you think has changed in uh, with respect to conversations about these topics i think one negative feature of uh, recent debates on economic policy in india mm. 
is that far too many of those who write on India mm. have been trained outside India. They are all become uh, victims or slaves of uh, very American way of thinking about the economy. Mm. Uh, and we are not that kind of an economy. We still have poverty. We still have the need for a large presence of the state in providing employment, in creating jobs, in modernizing agriculture, in creating infrastructure. Let's just look at the last couple of years. The mm. current chief economic advisor, the previous chief economic advisor, the previous governors of the Reserve Bank, all educated in the U.S., they come mm. with Western ideas to mm. India without adequate understanding of the ground reality, the political reality of this country. Mm. So I think the reason why the a book like this should be read today is to show how powerful indigenous thinking was. Mm. You know, these are all guys who were sitting here and writing this document. Mm. Of course, they were influenced by thinking around the world, right? Many of them even studied abroad. Mm. But they were in India... They were working in India. They had understanding of the Indian reality. Mm. They had a direct understanding, uh, you know, as employing people, etc. Uh, and that comes through this document. Mm. You know, the uh, fact that they they had their feet on the ground mm. and their head on their shoulders, and they were not looking for recognition from professors in Yale and Princeton and Chicago Booth. And you know, our, today too many of these Indian economists are looking for approval from Western mm. peers. Uh, that was not there. Nobody here was bothered about what the rest of the mm. world thought. They were saying this is what India should do mm. to move forward. That's very interesting um, because on one hand, I think you're coming from a place that says we need to also figure out what solutions work in India without adopting a lot of the models. Whereas you have a hyper belief from one set of people in this country who believe that only, you know, more things should come from this country and that everything imported from the West is bad. Uh, but when we think about some indigenous knowledge, particularly about issues like this, one person who immediately comes to mind for me is Dada Bhai Nauroji, for example, who wrote extensively about some of these issues. And I think even the roots of the Swatantra Party go back to him at one point. So we do sort of have figures, we do have a knowledge that existed with Indian economists, as you'd mentioned, who wrote extensively about these things. And I think searching for strains of them will provide us maybe uh, with ideas about how we could figure out uh, ways to reform our economy. Absolutely. You know, when I talk about Indian ways of thinking, I'm not asking people to go back to Mahabharata and Ramana for understanding the economy. Right. I'm, I think that trend that we knew everything. Mm. Oh, there were our uh, ancient uh, rishis who could do uh, bypass surgery and heart nuclear operate. weapons and in they, the Mahabharata. Yeah, we had nuclear <laughs> weapons, we had helicopters and you know, all this utter nonsense. Mm. I believe in science. I believe in modern education and scientific uh, explanation of things. What I'm saying is that whatever policies we evolve, mm. they have to be based on a good understanding of the ground reality the political economy of development. Mm. You know, you cannot enunciate policy saying, oh, this is good in theory. Mm. This is what some Nobel Prize winning economist said in a paper published in you know some uh, very famous international journal if it doesn't take into account the ground reality of this country. Mm. So when I talk about people with their feet on the ground, I'm not asking you to go back into history. Mm. Just look around what you have today mm. and learn from the world. 
and in my view that was the chinese model uh, you know they were open to ideas from all over the world but at the end of the day they had their own model of development which ensured agrarian reform that ensured lit- 100% literacy you know that pursued um, excellence in in education institutions you know so i think uh, we can certainly develop a modern indian model of development mm. without going back in time mm. uh, but based on modern concepts which are relevant for us mm. we sort of spoke about this a little bit before but why do you think like i didn't look at the i didn't come across the bombay plan at all in my schooling why do you think it's instructive for someone of today to go back to the bombay plan for two reasons mm. one simply to see how some of the enduring problems of this country are not problems of just today mm. they've been around for some time and that therefore these are long term challenges for us and there is no magic wand mm. you know uh, which is why i feel very uncomfortable with this thing oh we'll become a 5 trillion dollar economy in 3 mm. year 4 year time no there's a lot of hard work you have to do to get there if you do the hard work nobody can stop you from getting mm. there so i think you know today's generation of students particularly those who think about public policy economy mm. etc uh, should realize that the challenges are fundamental mm. whether it's dealing with ag- agriculture whether it's dealing with uh, poverty whether it's dealing with manufacturing there are fundamental challenges mm. and second reason is to realize that you know here were a group of people what uh, 70 80 years back mm. who were thinking about the same issues and in that sense you know in historic time 80 years is not much mm. but on the other hand in these same 80 years look at where china is look at where uh, southeast asia is malaysia indonesia South so Korea. we lost the bus in some senses mm. and i my argument and the books argument all the co-authors argument is we lost the bus because we didn't pay attention to these basic ideas mm. which were there all right dr baru this is my last question to you but if someone wants to read more about indian ways of thinking about economics or about the bombay plan what books or what resources would you recommend for them well there's a lot of literature now i mean you go back to the writings of people like k n raj who was a uh, head of the delhi school of economics uh, p r brahmananda who was the head of the bombay uh, department of economics uh, prabhat patnaik mm. who's a professor at nehru university uh raja chellaya you know there are lot of indian economists who uh, taught in indian universities uh, in the 60s in the 70s amir bakchi in calcutta mm. you know um lots of them who have done basic research on this country and have shown ways forward for the country mm. we are very fortunate actually that we have this body of of thinking mm. um of individuals who lived in india understood the indian reality and uh, wrote books so there's enough uh, literature thanks to google you can actually google all these names mm. and i think most good departments of economics uh, like a delhi university or jnu uh, would have syllabi including many of these mm. writers all right thank you so much dr baru thank you for joining thank me today thank you thank you for this history is filled with what ifs but going down that road is romantic but counterfactual Instead we can try to emulate the spirit of the plan. 
If you want to read more about our economic hysteriography, I've attached a bunch of resources for you in the episode description, so do check those out. And if you want to delve deeper into some of the topics that we discuss on states of anarchy, whether it's in public policy or foreign policy, I suggest you check out some of the policy courses at the Takshashila Institution. They're of varying lengths depending on your interest, and you can always just attend the classes from home, so do check those out. If you have any comments or questions, you can reach out to me at the rate Hamsini H on Twitter and at the rate States of Anarchy on Instagram. You can listen to States of Anarchy not only on the IBM podcast app, but also on iTunes, Spotify, Savan, Audio Boom, Castbox, or wherever you get your podcasts. So go subscribe, and we'll be back next week. Filter coffee is a fascinating beverage. You need to pick the right beans, blend them in the right proportion, roast them to perfection, and slow brew at the right temperature to get the perfect cup. Which is exactly like great conversations as well. You need to track down the most interesting minds, get them into their zone, and settle down for an unhurried, unscripted chat. And coffee for me is always, always, always best enjoyed with friends. I'm Karthik Nagarajan, and do share my table. As I meet some of the most interesting people I know, and sit them down for a strong cup of coffee and an even stronger conversation. Join me every Wednesday for a freshly brewed episode. This is not frappe. This is the Filter Coffee Podcast. Hi, I'm Satyajit. Hi, I'm Racheta. We are from the Open Library Project, and we host a podcast called Paperback. Paperback is a podcast where we engage with stalwarts and experts from various industries, suggesting non-fiction titles that contributed to their journey in a big way. We've had guests like Anjali Rana, Dr. Marcus Rani, Dr. Swati Loda, Ambi Parmeswaran, Apurva Damani, and many more on our show Paperback. Find new episodes every Wednesday on IVM Podcast app, website, or wherever you listen to podcasts.